Welcome to Merns Writer's fourth podcast, part two. Or welcome back if you've already enjoyed part one. What you'll find here is another rich variety of form and content by another eight of our members. Short poems, funny poems, lyrical poems, a wee story, some pungent comment in the form of a song. We'll visit New Orleans, explore someone's love of cinema and trivia, Santa, plums, a Drich family day out, a murder of crows, flowers in a breeze, and a dram on a stormy winter's night. Something to suit every taste. We started the last podcast with writing stimulated by art, and we'll start this one with a poem that's based on a love of music. Our first reader is Olga Barata with her poem, Voice. Play me a song about New Orleans, a music song that lasts all night long. Play the fevered streets. Play the afternoon languor, the tired breeze. Play the stomping and dancing and clapping, the parade on Mardi Gras. Play me a song while the bartender prepares a sazerac and the silk dresses glide around tables, and men in suits smoke Cuban cigars. Play the Bogalusa strut, the Dixieland one step, crazy love, and all that jazz. Play me a song with an unforgettable smile. Play me blue skies, and for all the songs I want to hear, it had to be you. Thank you, Olga. Play me blue skies the fevered streets. I can feel the afternoon languor, the tired breeze, wonderful phrase. I can feel the atmosphere, hear the sounds of New Orleans. Bourbon Street comes alive in that poem. Mardi Gras and the blues. It's a lovely wee poem, Olga. I know you're fond of music. What played it into your head? The reason for writing this poem is that I love music and uh, music evokes um, geographies and historical times and um, those also frame writing so it was a way of um, um, fixing this and um, the love of music into writing. Uh, That's a fascinating idea Olga. The poem certainly pins down what New Orleans means to me and you could hear I think that my dog appreciated it too. As Dryden said, from harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. I like the idea of fixing your love of music into writing. Thank you, Olga. Our next reader is Caroline Carruthers with her poem. Trivia. Some think dyslexia is trivia, but I beg to differ, Olivia. Words and letters are easy. Numbers make me feel queasy. As they clog up my brain, leading to pain, fixed only with an eraser or Captain Kirk's taser. Computers and tech cause a crick in my neck, affecting my mind, I go partially blind. I looked up the words no one had ever heard. Of this newfangled malady, this may sound like a parody. Give me paintbrush or pen, it's for them I would yen. Where I cast out to sea, I would happily be. Marooned on an island, if there were none, I'd find them. With sun, sea and wind, I'd be happily pinned. Wow, Caroline. I really love the constant play on the bizarre and unusual rhymes you have in that poem. Dyslexia, and I beg to differ Olivia, or malady and parody. 
Eat your heart out, Byron. These rhymes are dazzling. It fits the subject and the tone of your poem, too, very well. What led you into writing it? Trivia, the poem um, I wrote because I think I do have a difficulty, and I definitely do have a difficulty with tech, and it is a form of dyslexia, which has a very long name. I looked it up, and uh, so people may laugh at it, but it's actually a handicap in the modern society we live in, which is all about everything being digital. And uh, so I thought, obviously, to make it amusing, it's quite appealing. And that's what the basis of it is. Aye, technology. I think I share that difficulty with you, Caroline. And you've certainly succeeded in making the difficulty very amusing. Captain Kirk's taser, I, I love that. It'd be the perfect solution for most technology, certainly technology I have to deal with. And your next poem is? Lights, camera, action. The maiden with the flaxen hair did not but stare and stare and stare. She seeketh heroes here and there, above the darkened spiralled stair. Perchance the high and twisted passage suggested something large and savage, loitered midst the castle barrage, the rumblings of the haunted carriage. Alas, the princess dared to look outside the tower she mistook, the outline of the guardian rook for the prince from Rinkstop Brook. She'd heard he was the bravest knight who challenged dragons day and night. He'd never give up in a fight. In fact, the story said he'd bite the heads of serpents if they dared to stop his quest to mount the stairs amongst the cursed damp dark air where mortal man might turn a hair. He'd charge through danger, always willing to best the witch or warlock chilling. He'd break the spell, was always killing beasts and monsters, double billing. At the cinema of old, where fables were spun into gold, great epics written and were sold, of stories ancient ever told. To make us dream of legends past, the fantasy we weave at last, ourselves imagined in the cast. Immortalised, we had a blast. Thanks, Caroline. I love the rhyming couplets. You sustain them well throughout the poem. The maiden with the flaxen hair did naught but stare and stare and stare. And the couplets help sustain that light tone wonderfully throughout. Beasts and monsters double billing. The power of cinematic dreams in there, making us dream of legends past. And I like the idea of the prince who said he'd bite the heads off serpents. What prompted you to write this poem? Uh, I think what prompted me to write Lights, Camera, Action was um, a love of film and cinema, always having been a big fan of that genre of entertainment since I was a small child, and obviously enjoying fairy tales as a, a small kid as well. So I thought that that was really what sparked that... Um, poem. Your love and knowledge of cinema certainly come through in that. In fact, the story is a combination of Disney channeled through Hammer. Thanks, Caroline. I enjoyed those. And now for a change in tone with our next reader, Nicola Fury Murphy. What's it called, Nicola? What lies behind it? This poem is called Last Plum on the Tree, and it was written in 2020 uh, during the pandemic. There was a glut of plums in Mum's garden and we had great fun together 
making lots of plum-related recipes. Last Plum on the Tree From a wing-back armchair, I spot a solitary plum outside, set within skeletal branches, plump and unblemished, burnished red, a sole survivor from the copper pan. Your bountiful brethren, long since harvested by the stirring hand. Ladled into batched jars, labelled and dated, chutneys, jellies and jams, conserved year upon year. A wily escapee from the crop's cull, lingering long after autumnal embers to plumb this snap cold depths, when even trees retreat to earthly slumber. Your candied blood, surely destined to grace a higher table. Pheasant breast or clafoutis, garnished with gold leaf. A banquet beyond. That's a veritable banquet in words there, Nicola. Your jam making has led to an excellent poem. Plump, plumb the depths. And of course, plumb, great play in words. Your candied blood garnished with gold leaf. Throughout the poem, you convey the colours, the tastes of autumn. And it's a nice piece of observation, preserving, dare I say, a moment and a season. I can almost taste it. Thank you, Nicola. And now, from the fruits of autumn, we plunge into the depths of winter with a poem by Sandy Ingalls. Retirement. Tell us about this, please. This is the English version of a poem. It was first written in Doric for my grandson when he was just a, a baby. It's called Santa's Retirement. It was the night before Christmas and Santa reflected. This is not how it should be. It's not what's expected. I've worked a whole year for the kiddies' enjoyment, but I'm not really sure I want this employment. I'm getting too old to work all the time. It takes me so long now I'm not in my prime. I need a long break away from it all. I think I'll retire before I just fall. Mrs Claus likes to tell me my time's not my own. She grumbles and moans that I'm never at home. She says that the elves aren't helping me out. And if the reindeer are asked, they sulk and they pout. There's Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. And out in the front, like a beast with a mission, there's Rudolph, psyched up, his nose like a beacon. They're good at the things that have always been done, and teaching them new tricks is never much fun. They pull my old sleigh when delivering presents, but when asked to do more, they fake silly ailments. So with each passing year, the harder it gets to summon the passion, the zeal and the zest for iPods and Xboxes and shoot 'em up games, for fight simulators and Windows file names. The kids don't want old things like sledges and carpies, things made of wood that do not need batteries. The dollies and teddies, the cuddly bunnies, the toys that were played with by daddies and mummies. They just want computers with widgets and pixels. I don't know the last time 
one asked for some skittles. So I'm stuck in the workshop from morning till night, and the elves are no help, because they're not very bright. But the kids will always leave biscuits and whiskey in their own special place alongside the tree. I must spend my magic at this time of the year, so the boys and the girls will be of good cheer. And now that I'm thinking, it seems awful dire, Christmas Eve doing nothing in front of the fire. No, even with slippers, mince pies and a dram, I don't think I'll be able to sit still for long. I'd have to be out, taking presents to kiddies, from the mums and the dads and the grandas and grannies. So I'd not be retiring, there's no need to fret, for the kids will need presents for many years yet. Oh, Sandy, that's a complete change of pace. Some great lines in there. I think I'll retire before I just fall, or she grumbles and moans that I'm never at home. Then old Rudolph, like a beast with a mission. And your use of lists is just great. iPods, boxes, shoot-em-up games, sledges and carties, wood not needing batteries, widgets and pixels. And I particularly like the elves who aren't very bright. I'll bet your parents enjoyed that a great deal, Sandy. Thanks. I certainly enjoyed it enormously. And now, for a complete change of pace, we're going to have a song written and performed by David Potter with vocal accompaniment from Gloria Potter, Both Sides of the Wire. Speak for our enemies 
the soldiers serve queen and country take them away now charge them go what you say may be right but we mustn't know he'll come to you in all you do for sake of everyone and you you stand for death and for life we are the wounded and the wise we are but drops in one ocean to see the way of all women relentless as the surf of time will break on your sands to return the fire on both sides of the wire the tension is getting higher And in between such a big wall Tell me how will it fall Tell me how will it fall Oh, close our eyes so not to see The thunder cries so we cannot hear for that cry is the cry of humanity Stronger than any armory It could win the day but will turn away The enemy must do the same Imprisoned with our time once decaying Women on the outside waiting We'll close our eyes so not to see and you cry so we cannot hear The cry is the cry of humanity Stronger than any other stand for death and for life We are the wounded and the wise We are the drops in one ocean To see the way of all women on both sides of the wire the tension is getting higher men on the inside women on the outside and in between such a big wall tell me how will it fall If you can decide, I put death, death all I put death, death all That's a powerful song. The Guardians of the Gate 
of hell on earth compelled by fate. And some beautiful harmonies between the two of you, particularly in that penultimate verse there where you sing, I don't know what the term is, but just slightly one behind the other. The walls we build between ourselves as a species. And the balance of the voices there creates a clear opposition between the two sides and yet somehow paradoxically reinforces the common humanity of both sides. There's clearly a story behind that song, David. What are the circumstances behind your writing it? It's important to remember the background to this song. The 1980s politically were very turbulent times. The UK under the throes of a right-wing government led by Margaret Thatcher had given permission to the USA to sight nuclear missiles on RAF Greenham Common to ward off the perceived threat of attack from the Soviet Union. It was the height of the Cold War and the nuclear arms race was fast accelerating towards a potential nuclear Armageddon in which there could be no winners. The doomsday clock, as it was known, where midnight represented annihilation of the human race, was reckoned in 1984 to be but three minutes away, the closest it had been since 1953, when the US and the Soviet Union began testing hydrogen bombs. The Greenham Common Women Peace Protesters set up camp outside the missile base to non-violently confront this madness and daily we watched the television newsreels as they courageously challenged the militaristic ethos giving up everything else to do so risking arrest and prosecution and in so doing becoming a major focus for global peace i believe they played a major part in diffusing this crisis and the eventual de-escalation of the arms race I wrote this song, which takes the form of a dialogue when the struggle was at its most intense. We owe them more than we will ever know. Indeed we do. It was a frightening time. Thank you, David. For a different, more muted exploration of violence, and with another change of tone and subject matter, our next reader is Carrie Sanders, who will be reading her short story, Whip. Whip. The fabric seats in the gold Oldsmobile were damp with sweat and smelled like hamburger grease. The girl was sitting in the back seat behind her mother, leaning her forehead on the window in the hopes that it would cool her down. Her brother hummed alongside her, behind their driving stepfather. They had been on the road for hours, and they were all tetchy from the heat and boredom. They were in the long, flat part of the state, and the radio wasn't picking anything up. The mother complained that reading had made her car sick, and the stepfather suggested she unrolled the window and stick her out her nose like a dog. Like a dog, the mother exclaimed. Like a dog, like a dog, the brother repeated. The trip was a surprise for the kids. One night the mother and stepfather had come home from the bar and the kids were still up. The stepfather had made a drunken, soft-eyed promise to take them on a trip they were bound to love a surprise road trip to see something wonderful. The mother was less enthused, muttering, They ain't gonna give a whip. She had taken to substituting her swear words after the neighbors complained about the brother yelling, shitting bitches, repeatedly at the 4th of July block party. Now, sensing that the enthusiasm for this trip was waning, the stepfather turned to drum up more interest. I'm telling you, you kids are just gonna love this. Just wait till you see it. Almost there now, fifty minutes, and I guarantee you that it's going to knock your socks off. 
They ain't gonna give a whip, the mother muttered. Whip, 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 the brother repeated. The girl looked out the window and chewed on her ponytail. The car wound alongside the river, and they approached what looked like a huge concrete wall. There it is, kids, just have a look at that. The stepfather pulled the car into the parking lot. The Grand Cooley Dam! The mother sighed, the girl scratched at a mosquito bite on her ankle, and the brother said, Damn, damn, damn. They parked up, and the stepfather got out of the car first. Come on, kids, you all are not going to believe this. He hitched up his pants and rammed a cowboy hat on his little bald head. The mother was always slow to move from a stationary position, and it took her a minute to uncoil herself from the front seat, putting one fat sandaled foot slowly out of the car at a time. Their brother, having been cooped up in the car for so long, had a lot of pent-up stuff to burn through, so he flapped and smacked and twitched. The girl stood a fair distance away from all of them and stared at the concrete wall. Have a look at this, one of the biggest man-made structures in the world, kids. Boy, howdy, are you in for a treat. The mother sighed again, and they all made their way across the hot gray parking lot and towards the visitor center. We can't miss the tour. There is enough concrete in this dam to build a road from Seattle to Miami. Can you beat that? The tour was led by a uniformed, older bearded man with a limp, and the girl remembered nothing else about it. They looked at concrete, they looked at water, and the mother said, oh, really, a number of times, the way she did around other grown-ups. The stepfather asked about megawatts and irrigation and pump generators. The brother yipped and barked his way all through the place, startling folks. They got lunch at the snack bar, flabby french fries and gray hot dogs. The stepfather gazed over at the dam and shook his head, whistling like he would at a pretty lady in a cartoon. Ain't that a beaut? The mother rooted around her handbag for a toothpick, stacking tissues, lipstick, snacks, and papers on the bench beside her. The brother rocked and blinked. The girl watched a large family at the table next to them as they unwrapped thick sandwiches and little bags of fruit. The children all had long, beautiful hair. The parents smiled and fussed over them while they ate. The girl thought they all looked so clean and brand new like they had never sweat or worried about doctor bills. The girl thought their house probably smelled like apples and shampoo. The stepfather stood and hitched his pants up. Time to hit the road. Gotta beat the traffic. The mother hated to be rushed. For Christ's sakes, can't a person just be for a minute? Makes no difference to me when we get home. I'll go when I'm good and ready. She fanned herself with the Star magazine. I don't give a whip. Whip, 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 said the brother. They ain't gonna give a whip. I love the stepfather's somewhat desperate enthusiasm and his wee cowboy hat. From the fabric seats smelling of hamburger grease to the flabby French fries near the end, it's so well observed. The wife's languid disinterest, the boy's bizarre behavior, and particularly that telling detail for the girl thinking the other family had never had to worry about doctor's bills. Not so well judged. What inspired you to write it, Carrie? This story, Whip, was inspired by memories of long, hot, itchy car trips when I was growing up in Washington State. As Jerry Seinfeld says, there is no such thing as fun for the whole family.
No, indeed, Seinfeld was right. Lying hot in a chain. I, I can remember car trips like that. I can even remember smelling the plastic seats. Thanks, Gary. That was great. Now, with another change of tone and form, we now have a poem called Crow by Marianne Nichol. What prompted this, Marianne? Through my window during the day, I observe the crows in silence. In the early morning, I'm wakened by their racket. This has led to darker thoughts about crows and this piece. Crow, your dishevelment is bold and unapologetic. Perhaps that's the least of you. Playing statues, silhouetted in high branches, untouched by fear. We know you know us, telling yourselves of our doings, taking notes, black recorder, spy in our midst, passing observations to your next generation, guardian of your lore. You give nothing away, but soak it all in. Your head turning, tilting, flicking, eyes missing nothing, looking around, looking out, looking down on us in silence. Silent until threat comes, when an unholy racket erupts, you and yours rise in cacophonous looping chaos, cracking and scratching the sky with your noise, swirling, feeling, cawing in warning, a protest, an intimidation. I saw you once, levering off the cowling on a chimney pot with your steely beak, jabbing, twisting, head down, shoulders hunched. You needed the nesting site. Dive-bombed by lesser birds, your focus was absolute. Grooming comes low on your list. Darker thoughts about crows indeed. Black recorder, spy in our midst. That's chilling. Looking down on us. You create a very precisely observed analysis, and not just the appearance, but the unmistakable sound, cacophonous, looping chaos. The nature of crows, levering off the cowling on a chimney pot with your steely beak. That's a powerful piece. I'm very fond of crows myself. And now you've another reading for us, a prose description this time. Tell us about this one, Marianne. During lockdown, things that caught my attention were smaller and closer. Signs of change were mostly in the garden. Growth became important and resulted in this piece of writing. The rise and fall of Perry's poppy. At first there was nothing but a faint trace of the past, just a few brittle shredded scraps of yellow and umber lying amongst others in the bed. A few shortened stalks, cut back last autumn, standing rigid, like the remains of a broken fence. In May there was a quickening. Spiky spears of green appeared. By late May, a small rosette of dark greenery had grown into an untidy cushion of deeply serrated thistly leaves that steadily grew to take up a patch of ground about three feet square. 
not much height yet. Soon, long leaves, arching, lolling and sprawling, demanded support. Canes and twine circled the unruliness, which still showed no inclination to produce anything more than leafery. In early June, buds began to appear among the foliage, dark green, egg-shaped and almost egg-sized. Some bowed as if their weight was too much for their stems, some weaving a slow way through the now-crowded space that the canes imposed, others proudly rampant, and lastly, several sneaky ones that had dodged restriction and crept out from under, along the ground. At last, mid-June brought the first flash of white as the fat shell of a bud eased open. It could have been an overweight lurd bursting his waistcoat buttons to reveal the full glory of his frilly jabot. As more buds opened, jabots crowded out and skirts splayed open in extravagant carelessness. On a windy day, it was like a highland ball, with white flounces, jabots, skirts and petticoats flying, flapping, fluttering through the figures of an eightsome reel, indigo knickers flashing at every twist and turn. Green jackets, ground-bound leaves, twitched and twisted in time with the wind. By the end of June, exhaustion set in and jabots scattered. Skirts became limp and torn, strewn on the ground, stained and soggy. A few hardies and some stragglers stood back to see it to the bitter end, but the best was over. It wasn't just a one-day wonder either. It went on for at least a fortnight. Whee, but that was grand. Now I'd better get down to it and tidy up after the hoolie. Smaller and closer indeed. There's some excellent detail in that piece, Marianne. An untidy confusion of deeply serrated thistly leaves. That kind of careful precision develops into a wonderful extended metaphor. When you compare the flowers to dancers on a windy day like a highland ball, the jabots, the skirts, the petticoats flouncing and whirling, flying, flapping, fluttering through the figures of an eightsome reel. And I just love the indigo knickers flashing at every twist and turn. That extended analogy of the dance is just right to capture the joyous whirl of the wind-blown flowers. And the pace of your piece matches that wildness. Thank you, Marianne. Our last piece is a poem by me, dedicated to Robert Henderson. His poem about Troilus and Cressida starts with him reaching for a good book and pouring himself a dram by, by the side of a roaring fire on a cold winter's night. And I've shared that moment with him in my mind often throughout the years, despite our being 500 years apart. To Robert Henderson. What started as a whisper, susurrating trees, as howling and splaying its baffled, empty hands against my windowpane? The leaves rise up in columns of dry fire, while trees bristle their horrified ecstasy. The house shivers and creaks as a flurrying, hungry hurry of wind explores its joints, and rattles at its frame. With book and dram, an amniotic pool I sit cocooned, delighting in its rage, 
knowing ideally there should be a crack, a gap just large enough to breathe a chill across the still warm air behind my back. And as I reach to turn another page, I relish how this fragile film may spill. That's it. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast by Men's Writers. I'd like to thank all those who have read their work during both parts of this podcast. I'd also like to thank Crum Hall for the excellent backing track, Island Life, which we use as intro and outro to these pieces. I'm particularly grateful to Alan Craig and Gregor McMurtry of Friends Eclectic for their hard work and patience in putting all the various parts of this recording together on our behalf. Certainly a lot of patience was needed to deal with such a cack-handed technologist as me. I suppose I should also thank the dog and the seagulls for the accompanying noises off, which added some gaiety and variety to proceedings. Thanks too to you for listening. Men's writers meet weekly on Mondays and Thursdays, Berbe and Sturhaven, respectively in normal times, but currently in a hybrid form. If you're interested and want more information about us, go to our website and Facebook pages. Just Google Men's Writers. Thank you.